0: What's up, world? I'm your host, Kareem Rahma, and you're listening to You People, a conversational podcast series sharing real stories from the diverse voices shaping modern America today. We are recording in New York City with Listening Party inside Canal Street Radio. You People is produced by Hyphen Media, an entertainment company focused on telling colorful stories. We're going to have a very interesting show today. I can just uh, feel it. I'm really excited to introduce you to Sehar Sikander, a Pakistani-American multidisciplinary artist, creative entrepreneur, and community facilitator. What does that all mean? Well, it means that she's great at a lot of different things, including photography, writing, producing, creative directing, and so much more. Sehar's work is very personal, generously self-reflective, and truly thought-provoking. She's worked with some of your favorite publishers like Man Repeller, Bust Magazine, and Women's Wear Daily, as well as some major brands like Adidas, Google, and Casper. Thank you for coming in today. I wanted to start off this conversation by talking to you about the fact that you've been in New York City for eight years, Mm -hmm. and I have been in New York City for seven and maybe six months.
1: So we're New York twins.
0: We're New York twinsies. Okay. And I always feel a connection to people that are like in the same general timeline because I feel like coming to this new world together, we may have experienced like really similar New York upbringings, Mm -hmm. for lack of better words.
1: Yeah. I think that's particularly poignant given the fact that the socioeconomic and cultural landscape of New York has changed a lot over the last decade. And I mean, people would then obviously say in the decades preceding, a lot of that has to do with gentrification and ultimately gentrification and culture and socioeconomic stuff is all tightly interconnected. And so for folks like you and I who are cultural and creative workers, yeah, it totally informs what we experienced and what we didn't and what might or might not lie ahead for us.
0: So when I first stepped foot in Williamsburg eight years ago, in my mind, I was like, wow, this is like a real beach town, like cool vibes, like really interesting. And over the past, not even just eight years, but the past two years or three years, the neighborhood has changed so dramatically. And sometimes when I'm walking around, I'm kind of like missing my old places and visiting my old ghosts in the East Village too.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, Williamsburg is an interesting one. I feel like... So I finished college in 2006 and one of my good friends moved to Bed-Stuy around that time and she was like one of the OG hipsters. Like literally she was like had friends that were like quintessential hipsters and she's like it was founded here and it was like it was still a very like ragtag like a little you know rougher around the edges there. And so to see Williamsburg evolve from that to becoming a little bit more curated and highbrow so to speak. But, you know, with some hipster scruff in there. And then like now in the last couple of years, like you said, from like the glossy clients I've had, I've also had some like really interesting ones. I'm, I think it's called Gray Line. You know, those double decker uh, red tour buses in Times Square. So that was one of my clients. <laughs> and I, that's all, all kinds of stories behind that. But they right around the time I shot for them, probably four ish years ago, had just started an extra Brooklyn line, and those motherfucking red, big-ass double-decker buses run right down Bedford, dude.
0: So you're right.
1: Last year, something is different. Wait, I
0: haven't seen one.
1: They do. I've been told, and I have heard of spottings from friends that I've told this. That is
0: crazy. I had no idea. I knew there was like graffiti tours and like other strange tours, but I have not seen the bus. They
1: might have discontinued it, but at one point, it did exist at the very least.
0: I think Williamsburg is so weird like to me and I live there and I have, you still do yeah I still do and I worked there for many years uh, when I was working at Vice in like 2012 and I was visiting that place and it was like you know so different and I think what is most interesting about it to me is that it almost resembles at this point in time like a Main Street USA like any town USA like you get off the tour bus <laughs> or you get off a cruise right. ship in like I don't want to say the Bahamas because it makes me feel really sad. Right. But another sort of island, and they mm-hmm. take you to Main Street and you buy little trinkets. Like that's what Bedford Avenue feels like these uh, days. Yeah.
1: I mean, I barely go to Williamsburg, but in the recent four ish years that I've gone there, I've been stopped on most occasions by European tourists asking me where Bedford is. <laughs> So, you are correct, once again.
0: Kind of baller. <laughs> um, so, tell me how to say your name because I've said it wrong so many times already today. I
1: know. I don't know if I was supposed to like interrupt you in the intro. Or I was like, or we're we going to be like button up and you're going to give me the cue. So, like, we're, you know, we're just doing what we this do. But freestyle <laughs> I'm like, how belligerent do you want me to be? Well, tell I me the two scale. ways. <laughs> tell
0: tell me the American way. All right. And then the way that it's supposed to be said. Okay. And then my weird Arabic version. Well, like impressions, <laughs> okay. TBD. Okay. So how I say
1: it for American people or just really anyone? Because I just don't want to deal with like doing a pronunciation lesson for Mad Long. Like literally, it's because of that. Like I rather be like mispronounced than waste my time with that. Other people will have the patience for that. So the, the regular American way, quote unquote regular, see my programming conditioning, is Sahar Sikander. Sahar Sikander. sounds so ugly, but that's <laughs> what I do. And then the real way, which is probably still not real enough because people make fun of my Pakistani accent when I go to Pakistan and say I sound like Benazir Bhutto, but I'm like low-key, that's a compliment because at least she was the president or prime minister or whatever. So, right. So, um, Sahar Sikander. So, you know, some Pakistani people be like, yo, that's really bad. That's the best I can do. I think it sounds really good. It's sweet. And how Kareem says it. Kareem said it about 13 different ways now. So, I mean, I will say that Sahel is in Urdu, which is from Pakistan. And Urdu's script, and I believe also language, is derived from Farsi and Arabic. So um, it means dawn, like in the morning. D W N is that's my name. My full name translated to English is actually Don Alexander. And when I was going through a wanting to be white phase, I wanted to change my name to Don Alexander when I was younger. Also another story, Whoa. but it is derived from Sahar, which is you know, and that's like my shit Arabic pronunciation, which means the same thing. And that's Arabic, and depending on where you hit the pronunciation in Arabic because they're like 20 words to one spelling depending on where you hit the, the note. The note, <laughs> it could mean like magic and like all kinds of other shit. So like take what you want. But that's the story of my name.
0: Well hopefully this can be the the <laughs> um the official kind of time that you have the only time that you have to say it again and explain it. Yeah. Um so let's talk about your youth. So you were okay. born in the Bay Area to Pakistani immigrant parents. Tell me about your parents. Oh wow Why did they move to the States?
1: You know, one thing that I'm not so great at that I have to get better at and it's loaded in a lot of like personal identity issues and trauma is not sitting down enough and bordering on at all with my parents to really ask them their origin story and the whys. I had a very traditional parent-child relationship with my parents growing up and because of various ways that we... head at certain times. I think it's just cemented that conditioning of me wanting to keep that line in fear of not having more shit hit the fan. And I think that, you know, again, this is loaded in so much stuff, but they have come around on a lot of things and I think that they are more amenable to not necessarily creating a peer relationship, but not looking at me as just traditionally as squarely the child as in a lot of our cultures is. And they are probably more open to expanding our relationship and having more thoughtful conversations and more and more like, quote unquote, adult candid conversations about things. And I think that I should find out more, but I honestly don't have great answers to that question. My brother probably does more so from what I know. It's very brief, but my dad uh, is a first generation college student. He and my mom were both raised in a village, separate villages in Pakistan in the Punjab province. And Punjab is the province that's uh, split between Pakistan and India. It's like a southeast Pakistan. And uh, both my parents are the oldest siblings on both sides. And I am the oldest offspring out of all the generation of all the cousins. And that comes with its own shit because I'm also a black sheep um, and a woman. My dad was, I don't know why, I think just intrinsically motivated to... Be formally educated. He was very studious while living in the village growing up. No one was in his ear telling him to really do anything. But his dad was really supportive when he saw that his son was really into his studies. One of the stories that he did tell over and over in our childhood is he would spend all the holidays, all the time studying for eventually this entrance exam to get into, I believe at the time, the most prestigious all boys boarding school. It was like probably like a K through 12 or, you know, maybe through grade 14, because they do like O-levels out there, British system. And uh, he initially didn't pass, and then he studies his ass off again through the holidays again, probably for another six months to a year, and finally got in. So he, I can't remember from what grade, but definitely like, he was a kid, he might have been in third, fourth, fifth grade, goes off to boarding school, and he, he does that. And he wow. was like the valedictorian of that whole thing, and he was a rock star, and he went to a college in Turkey for a little while, but then found out there was an even better school he could go to in America and transferred from there to UC Berkeley Wow! and did his bachelor's and master's in civil engineering, structural engineering buildings and structures. And then he went to MIT to get his MBA at the Sloan School concentrating in marketing and finance. So, I mean, that's kind of my dad's story. My mom, like... Apparently, my parents are distant relatives, which freaks me out, which I've not said out loud to many people ever. And first time on a podcast, ow, exclusive. So... It's distant. Uh, yeah. That, it, quite, I honestly think that at this we're, point we're in time, even, related, yeah. Yeah,
0: I think in the States even, it should maybe be destigmatized. <laughs> distant is like, fine. I, I'm, yeah. I'm going on the podcast, say, on the record.
1: <laughs> no, I feel you. I have not I had any you.
0: relations with any of my family members. <laughs> But I may have by accident. <laughs> you never know.
1: Yeah. So, you know, somehow through someone, through someone, through someone, it was like an in- arranged marriage. But, you know, I they gave their okay. And because it was more traditional, I think my dad was like, yo, I'm going to the U.S. to study and like do the American dream thing, whatever his version of that was. And my mom came along, you know. And so my mom, she was raised... This is all coming up in Fathers, which is interesting, but it's related to culture, I guess. But her father was very disciplinarian and very strict. And both families, both sides of my family are very traditional, but he really did promote education a lot. Um, he was kind of like a cold isn't the right word, but just kind of like dispassionate, like not. Yeah, maybe it was like
0: an old school Pakistani yeah. man.
1: Yeah, I think even the, the my maternal grandmother was even more dispassionate to the point that she didn't really show affection much. I think that my maternal grandfather did show affection, but at the same time was stern. And so what was interesting juxtaposed with that, which was kind of, I guess you could say progressive, especially in that day and age, is that he encouraged his kids to speak their mind. So my mom was raised to actually have an opinion and share it, which was really interesting. And so you know, that caused some interesting dynamics in my household with my parents. But that's as much as I really know about my parents. I don't, I think my mom came and she got married and it was kind of like you come and you get married. And because she is a free thinker, she did end up going and, you know, actually getting a a bachelor's by the American system and standards here. And she even learned some computer programming and stuff. And, you know, she worked for a little while and then (laughs) realized that, she doesn't really want to be beholden to a job, and she just rather like nerd out on her own time. And you know, my dad was like, "Cool, do that." And so she nerds out a lot. She's like very savvy on the internet. She stalks me a lot on the internet, admittedly, and that has resulted in a lot of dramatic stories. So I have to kind of be careful <laughs> about what I get into the she world. <laughs> she probably will. I'm like low key. Like one day she's gonna find podcasts, and she'll be like, "Saher, second." um
0: Sounds like she's in like a. Intellect enthusiast.
1: Oh, she's so hardcore. And like, I can't remember if I don't think I know her birth time. This is getting nerdy into astrology and stuff. I'm very much like an intermediate, but I think birth time determines your important parts of your chart. But somewhere in her chart, and again, I might be incorrect because I don't have her birth time. It said that she was a Scorpio somewhere in there. And Scorpios are really, really intense and obsessive. And I was like, that's why she's obsessed with research. I mean, like, even if that's not her charm, I'm like, I'm just going to take it and that's run so with bad. it. She's really, I mean, that's probably where I get my obsessiveness from. I was telling a friend about how I like, am really good at stalking people on the internet. Like so much so that there have been people in my life that... I find out like a whole lot about to the point that like, if they knew I knew that about them, it'd make it weird. And I'm, so I just withhold the information, and keep acting normal. Cause I'm like, I know that disclosing that I know whatever about them would make it weird. And I just like, I'm going to be normal. So, and then they'll like eventually share the thing and I'll be like, Oh,
0: Oh yeah. I didn't know that about you.
1: It's pretty intense. Like I could be a private investigator.
0: Maybe for, you should consider sure. it. <laughs> I, think that's, a, I think that's a cool job. Yeah. Um, well, that's so funny. Like that reminds me of a story about my own mother who surprises me constantly. Yeah. But recently, I think I gave her like my old iPhone, which was like in great condition. And it was maybe an iPhone 7 or 8 or something. She's on T-Mobile and I'm on AT&T. And I was like, oh, mom, just take it to like Boost Mobile or something and they'll unlock it for you but it'll be like $60 or whatever. And then I get a text like five days later and she's like, ha ha ha, I did it myself. I unlocked the phone. And I was like, wait, are you a hacker? Like (laughs) my mom literally did something that sounds very complicated. Like she unlocked her phone herself to save $60, which is pretty baller.
1: Amazing. I was
0: very proud of her at that moment. Yeah. But I don't want her to learn the tricks that your mother has because my mom only sees the things that I post. I'm not going to talk anymore because I don't <laughs> want her to listen to this and then type in my name and then figure out that she can Google me. And I'm, I you know.
1: mean, my mom has created like a decoy Facebook and Instagram accounts and followed me and like, shout out mom, like I blocked you on everything. But I think that you know that because we talk about this sometimes.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. It sounds like you guys have like a playful, strange relationship, but I think all relationships are strange. It also sounds like you moved a lot when you were young. You went from the Bay to Cambridge, then outside of D.C., then back to the West Coast and the Bay again and then the East Coast for college and then back and forth. It's like, I can already see an identity crisis based on my own identity, but I felt really grounded growing up in Minnesota Mm -hmm. where I was like, oh, I'm Minnesotan, like that's my identity. And I didn't even shake that off until recently after living in New York for eight years, I'm like, oh, I'm like more of a New Yorker. Like I really feel like a New Yorker, like my identity is that of a New Yorker. So how did you cope with all of these moves and Mm -hmm. then already having this like establishing Pakistani identity and being raised in it?
1: Yeah, yeah. It's interesting because I think that moving was my identity in, you know, my earlier years. So I started those all those moves back and forth between the East and West Coast around the age of probably like five, five and a half to pre-college moves to about the age of like 11-ish. And um, then I went back and forth a couple times after college, during and after college. So... It's, you know, that being said, it's, we moved four or five how many ever times and we were moving every couple of years that meant. And my brother was even younger. You know, my brother's five years younger than me. So he was like one or something when we started moving. And so it was a big part of his identity, too. And I remember when we finally settled back in the Bay, I was born and mostly raised in the Bay. And so after we did kind of our East Coast cal stint, we ended up back in the Bay right before middle school for me, 11-ish. And we were there for like, I don't know, close to a a decade before I went to college or something like that. We were staying put and my little brother was like, after a few years, he's like, why aren't we moving yet? (laughs) You know, it was it was real. And so I think for him, it was formative from a younger age. For me, I think I had intellectualized a little bit more what had been happening. So I was like, okay, this is the place where we stay put. So it was fine. But my identity was, for better or for worse, really wrapped up into it in the sense that I grew up in different kinds of communities, different types of ethnic and socioeconomic makeups, and it required me to be okay with letting things go and not being too attached after a while and like getting used to being the perennial new girl and, I guess, finding my way. But it left me without really any groundedness of a home or identity or any like people had. They're like friends since elementary school and high school and I didn't. Right. Yeah, it's just it, I can't really blame that alone on me being a social misfit because honestly, if I was born and raised in one place, I am quite certain I still would have been a social misfit for other reasons of how I'm organized as a person. But it definitely didn't help. And, you know, I went to some schools that I don't know what the terminology is these days, but yeah. back in the day would be like, dubbed as like, quote unquote, inner city schools, Um, you know, poor schools, more ethnically diverse schools. And then I ended up in a white ass fucking suburb in the Bay Area. And all the way through high school was getting teased based on like really lame, inaccurate (laughs) ethnic jokes because they group all of us together. South South Asia and the Middle East are the same thing. And so, you know, whatever they could find in their grab bag of jokes. And so I was really, I had a really tortured K through 12 experience. And, you know, as you get older, it gets more and more painful. So high school really sucked and I didn't fit in. And how culture wraps up in that of my own Pakistani culture, I feel like, and this goes back to like really, maybe really diving into my dad's story from a more critical lens because I think it might require us to ask him questions that he hasn't really asked himself or come to terms with yet. And like, are we ready for that? You know, is he ready for that? I think he knows kind of in certain ways why he came and other ways, not really why. And so to that point, growing up, he would say things to us like, oh, we're American or Pakistani American or whatever. And they're like, you're not American. My dad would say, you're not American, you're Pakistani. He was adamant to the point of like being borderline militant about it. And it was a big turnoff. And it was, we would go back to visit Pakistan every three, four-ish years. And there were some times when I was younger before I became a woman and had to face certain cultural restrictions or just intellectually was able to parse a lot of the bullshit. I had fun and then I didn't when I went to Pakistan. And so but even when I had fun, it was like America is more of what I know. You know, it's it's my home in relative terms. And that really, really existentially disturbed my dad. And so there was that friction. And, you know, I remember as young as like, probably four or five years old being in like a preschool kindergarten and feeling that my beauty was not the standard beauty looking at, you know, blonde hair, white girls, and being like, that's pretty long straight, you know, silky hair is pretty blue eyes is pretty. And no one said anything to me, like adults or whatever. And I don't know if I picked something up from conversations, but maybe there wasn't even anything said between the kids. It's just like looking and seeing who likes who and I'm not that. And I'm the minority. Um, And, you know, the school I was going to and I, I've gone through so many iterations from all the way from that young age, all the way through even probably some parts of high school of wishing I was all kinds of different races. The first one was white and then I wanted to be East Asian and I wanted to be black and I wanted to be all kinds of different things. Because just Pakistani did not come into the mass psyche of America until post 9-11. People literally growing up did not know what Pakistan was. They knew India. They did not know Pakistan straight up. Right. You know what I mean? And like the schools that I went to, if there were any South Asian kids, it was a few of us. And it'd be hard pressed if there was another Pakistani. I might be the only one. They might have all I don't been think, Indians. I don't think I
0: knew any in high school or elementary school.
1: Right. I went to very, very white schools. It was very self-segregated. There were East Asians, Southeast Asians there. They were self-segregated and they had their own thing going on. I wasn't part of that. And there were white kids. And then everybody in between, the few Latino kids, the couple black kids and you know, whatever else in between, it was like if you didn't whitewash, you know, culturally and the music you consumed, how you talk, the slang that you use, the TV you consumed, if you didn't listen to Dave Matthews and watch Dawson's Creek and what the fuck ever else, which I did not, I prescribed more to because we're given a binary in media, black and white media, I ascribe to black slang, quote unquote, black sitcoms and black music, R&B and hip hop. And straight up, I was labeled ghetto because black equaled ghetto. That's the type of school I went to. So you already see me getting kind of like turnt over it. But like, yeah. And it's resulted in even now to this point, like a very, very culturally confused identity that it's like I grew up in the Bay where it's like, for better or for worse, before it was like a politically conscious activist, all that stuff. Right. And now that it's entered the mainstream consciousness for better and for worse and that's like I have a whole commentary on on all of that too I've had to find myself questioning things even more and and in a lot of ways it's valid but and with that comes kind of a a jarring to my entire identity you know like how I speak and things like I've I went to certain schools that were like I had friends that lived in the projects. You know, I mean, granted, I was like in grade school and like, you know, how people would fight on the playground like might be just kind of hood. And then I go to the super white school. And so it's like, I'll be talking certain ways and this is this and this is that. And like now, if you take my whole life, I was raised largely in like a white suburban whatever. But it's like my identity is a mix of things and I never related to whiteness. And given the binary between whiteness and blackness, I related more to blackness. And so now when it's like, oh, like you know, appropriation and thing and, and that's absolutely valid and important. It's important for us to break these things down. But speaking of code switching, like I now like start freaking out about how to talk, you know, because I'm like, shit, some black people and I've had conversations with some black friends of mine so, and they all have different opinions. Some of them are like, what's talking black? Well, I'm like, OK, African-American vernacular English at this point is like an area of study in fact took a course like Ebonics is a thing. But then there are people that are, I have a friend from South Central that's like, but I, I don't even know people in the hood are like, whatever, what's talking black really? Cause there are people that talk all kinds of ways in the hood valid. So it's like some people have that opinion. Other people are like, it makes me a little uncomfortable when you talk that way. Other people are like, I don't give a fuck how you talk. These are all now a few black friends that I've talked to. So it's just like being second generation, having a lot of issues with what's happening culturally and even in my extended family in Pakistan and how I've been raised here in my nuclear family unit. Then you take the Pakistani community that my family grew up in, you know, the aunties, uncles, other kids, there could be a whole podcast about that. I mean, this is a pocket like I could literally talk about it for hours and it's very repressed. It's very unresolved. It's a very tortured part of my identity that I know at some point I need to unpack more. But for now, I'm doing it in bits here and there, or not. Cause it's like, it's literally this like hodgepodge of a foundation. And like, it would require me to entirely do my redo my foundation, which it's a whole thing. For sure. Yeah.
0: It sounds extremely complicated. Yeah. Of which it is. Yeah. I will say that I love your voice and I think that it's dope. Like, I think to me, you have a Bay Area accent. Mm-hmm. That was my initial reaction. I actually didn't really notice if it was black or white or Southeast Asian. I just, I was like, she speaks like she's from the Bay. Right. But it's because the Bay that I've been exposed to though is like literally rappers like YG Mm. and like, you know, professional basketball players who are from the Bay. And I hear your voice in their voice.
1: Interesting. I wouldn't say that I have an Oakland accent because that's like definitely its own thing. And I wasn't speaking as much in terms of accent. I mean, here and there in terms for like, flair expression like an intonation might come out but it's like choice intonations and like slang but that like are not truly for me performative it's just how I am but someone that doesn't know me might view them as performative or appropriative or whatever and like how I'm talking to you like I'm so hyper conscious of how I'm talking right now and how to talk and not to talk and what's genuine what's not genuine what is me editing how I might normally even talk to myself alone at home but I don't want people to judge me right now it's part judgment and part wanting to truly respect not being appropriative, not being transactional with people's culture, in this instance, black people's culture, which they are, they're policed and brutalized and killed for and othered and sequestered for. You know, all this stuff is is very important to me. But the second generation identity, especially when you're home, quote unquote, country where you come from, is something that you have a very fucked up relationship with. It's like, where the fuck do I belong? I don't know.
0: Right. You know? Yeah. So, I wanted yeah. to get into your move to college. Okay. You went to what I have heard mm-hmm. is a really fantastic school, which is the Wharton School. And it's a great school for business folks. When you applied, did you know what you wanted to do? And were your parents supportive of your choices?
1: So, I generally was not a rebellious kid. I was raised to be very honest, and I, for the most part, stuck to it to the point that it was a fault. So it was just easier for me to be an obedient kid because I just couldn't fathom the lying that it required to be a quote-unquote bad or deviant kid, non-conforming kid. And so why I share that is to say my parents gave me like the holy trifecta of trinity, whatever, of uh, majors you can do with a doctor, lawyer, engineer, right? That was what was on the table. And then the stepchild was business, you know, maybe because my dad got an MBA. So it's like, okay, that's like low key prestigious, too. (laughs) And, (laughs) And they considered us to be smart. Like I come from a very like intellectual, sharp, smart family again, for better and for worse. Yeah, I did. I wouldn't quite say shit, but by their standards, shit in high school. I got into like a couple like mediocre state colleges in Cali. And they were like, you can do better. You're going to community college. Get your shit together and get into a top school. So that's what I did. There's a whole story in my childhood. I wanted to at some point be a lawyer and a doctor, never an engineer. But then I'm like, I don't like studying and some other things. I was like, I don't want to do advanced degrees. So I got into business and they said I could do business. But before that even happened, my mom had gone back to college and got in She went to CSU Hayward, which is one of the state schools in California, and got a bachelor's in management information systems, which required some computer science courses. So she was a programmer. It was during the tech boom still. And she was like, listen, you're good enough at math, you're analytical, whatever. Go get a BS in computer science and then you can go get your MBA and you can become a tech executive and do your marketing stuff that you like. And I was like, okay, fine. And I was really good at programming. Um, I did a couple classes. I aced them. And then uh, I was taking an honors, like, maybe this is a call. I'm not positive. I think it was linear algebra and differential equations. Honors at that at UC Berkeley. And was totally fucking myself. It was really hard and not get anything. So it was, you know, a handful of weeks into this course, going to community college and just taking this one honors course to make my, like, transfer resume look fancy. And my mom was picking me up one day from that class and I was like, I used to hang out on campus a lot because I had a lot of friends at UC Berkeley. And I would just like, people would think I was a student there because I was hanging out so much. And I went to like a career thing that um, was organized by the Muslim Students Association. I had some friends in it. And this guy, I mean, keep in mind, this is like early 2000s. This guy was like, the major you choose determines the rest of your life. Things are very different now. But like I just remember that reverberating through my head and I was like, I can't sit as a programmer for three years or whatever after I graduate. And so I told my mom and I was like, I can't do this. I can't do like this grace period of being a programmer until I get my MBA. I can't do it. I want to do business now. And so we dropped all my courses. It was just enough to uh, make the drop deadline so I wouldn't get like, whatever marks on my transcript.
0: That's like really bright.
1: But it was too late to enroll for full term courses. So I wouldn't waste an entire semester of college. I signed up for a full course load of half term courses. Those intensives that are like twice a week, three hours per class. And so I did that and switched my major to business. And my parents were really strict. And they were like, you can only go... Away from the Bay Area, from college, if you get into a college better than what's local to, you and fucking UC Berkeley and Stanford are there. So, I'm like, okay, business. I went on like whatever the I forget what the news journal it was like. It wasn't USA Today, but something like that. And they would do college rankings and so like, what's the best? What are the best business undergrad programs? And like the top three, four were like UC Berkeley, MIT, University of Michigan, and the Wharton School at UPenn. UPenn was number one undergraduate at the time. I had never even heard of Wharton. And uh, I was like, I guess I'm applying there. And it turned out that I received, because of this poor school that I went to, ironically, it was our neighborhood school that was tied to the graduate student housing we lived on as a family while my dad was getting his MBA at MIT. So my dad's going to a prestigious private. The graduate student housing home elementary school was a poor inner city school that we went to. Granted, we weren't balling, but still. So I'm going to school with these kids and I ended up getting a um, not merit-based, but need-based scholarship that our whole second grade class got for a full ride to college. And um, this guy named George Weiss, the program's called Sayish the Education. He went and basically did this model in different iterations of it in various inner city schools. And we got a full ride to any college we get into. And he is an alum of the Wharton School. And so it turned out that the number one school was this guy's school. And so, you know, he wrote me a recommendation. I applied and I got in there and I got into Haas at Berkeley, which was, I think, number two. And that's, I only got to go away to college because I got into the number one school. You
0: got to do what you got to do. and It's a means to an that end. Story. You were like, I'm out. Peace. Yeah. Peace. Well, I had a deal with my dad where... Mine was a lot less intense, but it was like, if you go to college, (laughs) this is exact words. If you go to college, I'll leave you alone. That's what he said. I was like, great. I'm in. Like, I'm in and I'm out of the house, Uh you know, and looking back at it, I have some nostalgia for how in a rush I was at the time, you know, like things weren't as bad as I thought they really were. Or maybe they were. I don't know. Maybe I have to reflect a little bit more to understand that. Yeah. So in college, did you find a sense of self?
1: So I transferred as a junior. I did two years at Diablo Valley College in Pleasant Hill, California, in the suburbs, in the Bay. And uh, I went in as a junior to Penn. And this is like maybe the first time remembering this in a long time. And I remember having these conversations with a couple of friends. It was the first time. Well, actually, it started happening a little bit at DVC, the community college. But even more so, once I went to Penn, like I went to these really white schools, like I said, it was the first time that I felt like I was getting attention for being considered attractive. And I was like, oh my God, I actually can maybe be a full human. (laughs) So I remember like having those conversations then. So for me, that was an important indicator that there are different kinds of people here. And that was as one illustration of people who will see me, you know, and that in a very literal sense and appreciate me. I think what colors my pen experience is that I did find more people that I related to and, you know, me not being white proximal wasn't an issue anymore, but I was very depressed at the time and wasn't, didn't have a full grasp on that. I was depressed. It was the first time I really started. I had been on and off depressed from 15 to 25 like cyclically, and I just thought it was like life, or it was just me, and I was broody and emo, and I'm still, even though I've gone through almost a decade of therapy and all this stuff, I am still identify as being an emo person, so I was like, maybe this is just me, maybe this is just life, and then finally, when I went, went to college, and I had a couple friends that had been in or were presently in therapy, that I was like, wait, am I? And my dad actually was clinically depressed for seven years, and there's a whole thing behind that, and it was a really a big thing. He had was diagnosed with major depression. And so I think in my mind, I didn't see that as a kid, thankfully. Like he was still very present and animated as a dad and all that. But at some point in so many words, my parents told me that my dad was going through this thing and here are the couple highlights about it. And so I was like, oh, like depression is that when it's like a really, really, really big deal with whatever my dad went through, not whatever is going on with me. And so then those conversations started in college and it wasn't until two, three, four years after college that I started therapy and was like, okay, I'm depressed. So my experience in college, I was, I met my people to a degree, but was also still very reclusive and antisocial. So I don't think I connected with people as much as I could have.
0: Right, right. Yeah. And then after that, let's talk about your one of two big breaks. The first big break yeah. being that you landed a, what sounds like a great job at a seemingly reputable company called Williams-Sonoma <laughs> out of college. And it's like, booyah, got a dope job, okay. making some money. <laughs> I finally did it. And then the bigger break, yeah. which is you leaving that job yeah. and becoming an independent creative. Yeah. Now, when you were at Williams-Sonoma, you mentioned that it was super white, yeah. a special white. <laughs> what does is, what is the special part mean?
1: <laughs> You're taking my like intoxicated on sleeplessness like shorthand thoughts. Oh, we can, <laughs> like, we can but, get, no, I can, I can elucidate. We can delete this part. No, we, we can
0: <laughs> do it Unless it has meaning. If it doesn't yeah. have meaning, then...
1: Yeah, let's see. So interesting thing is that I definitely wouldn't consider the Williams Noma job a big break. I'm not sure if I had caught you up on this earlier, but... That was also a decision due to me still operating from a place beholden to my parents. So they said, once you graduate, you have to live with us until you get married. Maybe I didn't, tell you that. I didn't tell you that little part. So I wanted to live in New York and work in the creative and strategy side of marketing, either at an agency, at a record label, at a magazine. That's what I wanted to do. None of that was in the Bay Area. And uh, I literally took the job. And all and my parents made me do all my internships in the Bay Area. I couldn't even stay over the summer in New York to do an internship. For those that don't know, UPenn is in Philly, so close to New York. So I all my internships had been um, marketing analytics. They also happened to be ones that pay more at entry levels, especially um, versus creative and strategy jobs. So that was my resume, and I had to look for jobs in the Bay. And I literally I was off a of Craigslist for like some random startups or there's like a film project I was interviewing for. I mean, they just had pennies to pay. And I was interviewing with Google and they have a notoriously, I don't know if it's changed, but months long interview process. And it was for some bullshit AdWords job. At that point, I think it might have changed since. But for many, many, many years, it didn't matter what school you went to, what your resume was. If you weren't on the engineer track, everybody else was routed into the company via having to start at the most entry-level job, which was being an administrator on AdWords, the paid ad stuff. And flat rate, you're getting paid like 30, 40 Gs, like nothing, especially in a place that I like the Bay Area that's quite expensive. And it was an hour commute to my parents' house from my parents' house to the South Bay. I was going to have to make it because I had to live with them until I got married. So I'm like interviewing them forever, have this like interesting couple creative jobs that pay $2. And then finally my mom was like, we were thinking of big companies in the Bay. We're like, what's in the Bay? Okay. Levi's is in the Bay. And I was thinking of some other ones. And she was like, have you heard of Williams? Noma? didn't know what it was. And she's like, Oh, this is a big company. They might have some legit jobs. And I just fucking applied to what the fuck ever got. The job wasn't into it. It was, I literally took the highest paying job straight up to the point. I was so lucid about it that the day before my job started, My mom was like, are you excited about your job? I was like, no, it's just a paycheck and a means to an end and hopefully I can get out of it sooner than later or they'll give me a better job function eventually. Wow. So it was shit. And so talking about the the special white people there, how do I put this? I feel like as people of color amongst ourselves and now enter the, the mainstream conversation too where white people know that we sit around and say white people, you know, like they know that now but before it was that wasn't a thing either so to one degree it's like yes that shorthand has some meaning but to another end it's like many of us people of color that are talking to each other many of us know that there's a subtext underneath that that like hashtag not all white people (laughs) like not all white people are fucking horrible and shit right so when we say white people we mean a certain type of white person and so like
0: permit patty (laughs) (laughs)
1: yeah something like that and so I feel like So you can slice this a bunch of different ways. They're American born white people where I remember I would like when I was younger, I would create like mini what I would call like mini silent revolutions and like do little things as social experiments. So one of my things was like, and this was before like white privilege and all these different things were really in my consciousness and vernacular. I felt like there was something entitled when you'd ask white people where they're from and they just say white. I was like, motherfucker, you're not just white. That is, you know, and so I didn't have the words for it, but I was like, that's not cool. So I started doing this thing where I'd start asking white people. I'd be like, where are you from? And they, when they'd say white, I'd be like, no, everybody's from somewhere. Your family immigrated at some point. Like I know a lot of white people, you know, say they're a mix of a bunch of things and you might as well not know. I want to know, are you German? Are you Irish? Are you? What the fuck are you? And it would throw them off because then they didn't get to be just status quo white, white, white alone is good enough. Right. So I think that there are a lot of white people that are just like, I'm white. That's it. That's good enough. Like you're kind of those people, white people, Americans. And then you have, you know, the white people that are cognizant of that and recognize their privileged white people. And that's a whole array of people because they're problematic liberal white people, too. And then you have white people that are not Americans, and that has its own spread. You take European Americans, like two of my closest friends from college are Bosnian refugees, and I would forget that they were white. It was just so different, the interaction with them. And then you have things like Armenian, where like, I mean, the Kardashians fucked it up for everyone because they're trying to be white and black and all the things, whatever they can get and where they can fit in. But Armenians are many of them identify as people of color and culturally and even in how they look or whatever. And then some identify as white. It gets really complicated when you get into like the Middle East. And so I mean, even northern and southern Italy. And anyway, so but when I say special white people, I mean, the white people that are just, you know, just really basic and like are unchecked in their privilege and like their white bubble. So like it was wasps. That's one, one type a, of...
0: A good category to, of think, to recognize.
1: Absolutely. So it was like that type of white people that I felt like I was working around. I remember there were like... I didn't watch Survivor, but they watched Survivor in different shows and would talk about it. And there was some sort of like racial like thing that happened that was like all over the news with I think one of like the black castmates perhaps. Definitely a person of color castmate. And I think I had like tangentially heard about it, but didn't know much about it. And the white guy totally fucking nice guy, but still one of those people comes up to me and he's like, as the one like brown person in the office, comes up to me and he's like, wasn't that just ridiculous about this race thing with the on survivor And I was like, excuse me? And I was like, you know, broke it down for him. It was this whole like, wow, you don't have to get so extra about it. I mean, I would eat lunch alone at my desk by myself. I wouldn't relate to anyone. I mean, William sonoma is a very privileged upper class white brand. It was so it was all white people, very well-to-do gay white men, and then you know Asian people that were like programmers and shit and did like techie stuff. It was a particularly prohibitive environment. And then you add into that their corporate culture. It's um a very like old school company. And, and my internships were at startups and things that were more agile and I was able to do different things and they were progressive. And that was my ethos as um, a worker. And I didn't get to do that. I was literally like a human spreadsheet.
0: And and how did you get out of that then? Did you get fired or did you quit?
1: I got fired. (laughs) It was great. So like, yeah, I was going to get back to that. So I'm glad you brought it back to that of like, so that being my true first big break is getting fired from that job. I know a lot of people were like, when it happened, you know, trying to like console me because people went to autopilot, even though I didn't say it in a sad way. I'm like, I got fired. They'd be like, oh, it's, you know, probably a blessing in disguise. I remember being like straight up. No, that's not a blessing in disguise. It's a blessing in plain sight. I know what that was. Yeah, there's a whole story around that. It was traumatic and problematic and all the things. I was at williams Number for four years. Nothing in my output had really wavered much. Like I was kind of at the same tempo, like just doing just enough, you know, to do the job. And I did got my twice a year reviews and I you know, hit the marks, they'd kind of just kind of as an aside to me say, oh, it'd be nice if you took more initiative, but it never showed up in my official remarks. I'm like, I don't give a shit. I'm not taking more (laughs) (laughs) initiative. And then halfway through, 20% of the company (laughs) got laid off. It was uh, 2008 and the peak of the recession. And there were people that had been at the company for 20 years and loved their jobs. And I didn't get laid off. And so I took that as a very clear sign that I know I'm not working at my full potential, but it must be good enough if they fired all these people and not me. So I was like, cool, I had a little bit of guilt about it, but now I definitely don't. And so I was carrying on as usual and granted, like, but and one of those carrying on as usual things is not a great thing, but I would be late to meetings. And so what triggered it is I was just late to one like Monday 9 a.m. meeting, one of those type of things. And they just had had enough and put me on a performance review and said, you know, Technically, at the gate, we have to tell you this could result in termination, but that's not what we're trying to do. We're just trying to rehabilitate you. And I was very forthcoming as you not really knowing me, but I think can tell from online and now like I'm an honest, straightforward person. I'll own up to shit. So I owned up to everything. And I was like, yes, I have not been operating at 100. Let's figure it out. Fine. If you need that from me, I'll deliver it. And they just added on all these extra ass that weren't part of my original job agreement with them and just created like this huge mountain for me to climb. And there was just all kinds of weird fucked up unethical shit that they were doing in the process. I brought HR into the process naively thinking that they would side with ethics. But at the end of the day, they're there to have the company's back. So that was just some fuck shit. And so it was a long drawn out three month review process to the point that someone that was critically involved in my review process kind of Sat me to the side and was like, I, you know, no, we're not really friends per se, but I really respect the integrity with which you've been dealing with this review process because they are fucked up. And unfortunately, I'm having this aside meeting to tell you that I can't speak up for you, even though I want to, because it would cost me the kind of the political stuff having to do with my own job. Right. I'm so sorry you're going through this and let me know how I can have your back the best possible. I'll write you recommendation when you get fired. He was basically like, there's no way out of this. No matter what you do, you are going to get fired. Because I started feeling like that. I felt crazy. And so ultimately, like I kind of knew that it was coming, that I was going to get fired. And at least he was some sort of ally to me. It made a big difference. And I knew having him affirm, quote unquote, the person from the other side that I was in my integrity was a grounding force and affirming force in that. And so by the time I got fired, it's like I had packed up my desk the day before I was ready. I had booked my flight to New York, was had like a interview in New York a couple days later. Like I was like ready to be out. And I couldn't quit because I couldn't afford to not get an employment. That's why I was sticking it
0: out. So, so tell me about the New York part though. You had already booked a ticket? Like this, you, That
1: wasn't my full move though.
0: Oh, okay. You yeah. were like just going to go...
1: I was going to go interview for another email marketing job at a record label actually because I was just like I was still in the hole, like I need to make money like I need to I can't have a gap you know and so I had the final review meeting where I knew I was going to get fired and you know they're like my main most like senior boss who I just really didn't get along with she couldn't even look at me and so the HR gave me the news and I was like cool I'm out they're like do you need to go to your dress I'm like no I'm cool I'm out I'm good to go And I left and I screamed at the top of the lungs in my car. It was like a scene from a movie. I was so fucking happy. So yes, big break. And then I went to New York to do this interview because I was still like, okay, still just need to have a regular job. At that point, I was like moonlighting as a photographer in my free time, but didn't feel viable as a job. Didn't get that job, came back home. And then my mom and a good friend of mine were like, dude, like be a little broke for a while. And just my mom even came around. She's like, I saw how unhappy you were like, try this freelance photo thing just be a little broke for a while be unemployment figure that shit out and so I made a plan to save up some money for six months to move back in from I was living in San Francisco at the time move back in with my parents save money and then move to New York May 2011 and caveat we didn't get into the story we can or cannot but even me moving to San Francisco was a whole thing from the suburbs I literally was supposed to live in my parents' house until I got married. And there's a whole story around how that happened. I was getting kicked out of my house and it was a whole thing. And then my dad eventually came around and I, then I got to live in San
0: Francisco. Yeah, that's a stressful situation. It yeah, they like. came around though. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Um, and so when you moved to New York, what was scarier? Like moving to New York City yeah, or making the commitment to being an independent creative? Or did it happen at the same time?
1: I can say there are a lot of things right now that I'm working on in terms of transcending fear in a major way. And I have not fully made the decision to address my fears or have courage and move forward despite in a lot of ways right now, right now with what I'm going through and the transitions I'm going through. So it's with pride and gratitude that I can say that I had no fear about moving to New York or about being A creative freelancer because it's like once you get a good solid taste of what you don't want in a bullshit ass life you're like I'm ready for this next shit and I was so ready and I had I had gone back and forth about moving to New York or not back and forth back and forth for years and then I had finally landed on my yes and I was laser sharp clear and I had landed on my yes about being a freelance creative at least trying it and it's interesting because one of our first like online exchanges were like, what do you do? What are you working on? And I'm like, I am so evasive with that question. I really, it's like, do you want a whole like monologue on that? Or like, I can give you just like the canned answer. That's not really the whole truth because it, I have to spend a lot of time figuring out what I'm doing because otherwise I drop so many projects. And the thing is when I find the thing, I'm like obsessively like laser, like I'm a machine. And so I was, that was like, that was the thing I was doing. It, it was happening no matter what I was going to figure it out. And I've been figuring it out since. And the journey continues.
0: So. It's kind of like you have a really healthy brain that is really strong on both sides. Mm. And it's like your creative brain comes up with these concepts and these ideas. And then your analytical brain like kicks in to full gear and executes them. And I think that that's like a massive talent that not many creatives have and not many analytical people have. You know what I mean? It's absolutely. like, it's like you're usually good at one or the other, but being someone who's able to like shift, yeah. like shape shift from one to the next is really interesting and really cool. Do you feel like that's like a burden or like a gift?
1: I absolutely feel like it's a gift and it's really cool to hear you reflect that back to me first without having me said it because I actually do describe myself in that way. In the meeting that I had just before coming here, I was talking with a woman that's starting a, a creative collective for women and She's very business-minded, but also somewhat creative. And we were having that conversation about being both left and right brain and how that is an asset and rare. And it's weird for me to... I don't consider myself an inherently egoic person. So the whole like fake humility shit is like bullshit for me. So it's like... But at the same time, for someone to say it and on top of that, for a woman to say it is taboo. And I kind of tote that line and try to figure it out. But I will say like to people that I do feel like that is a talent of mine. But a lot of times when you're tooting your own horn like that and people don't really know you from a can of paint, they're going to be like, yeah, that's cute. But I really do think that that's a talent of mine and that it's rare and it's not to knock creative people. You know, most creative people are either loopy creatives out there doing their thing or even if they wanted to be better at business, it's just they don't have that bone in their body. So they're, they're immersed in their craft in this really beautiful way that I'm not in certain ways. So it's like, and then you get into the conversation of like supportive societal structures. It's like what, you know, capitalism and the current like news cycle and the internet culture and all this stuff, content culture makes creatives to be machines. Or you think about like neuroatypical people. Or people with autism or whatever. The system is set up to think that if you don't fit into this square category of competency, then you're incompetent and you're useless. But what about you know autistic folks and people that are neuroatypical that have... Or these creative people that don't have business skills that have these really profound savant-like skills, which they do and the system isn't supporting them. So I do want to temper me thinking that I'm special because I'm left and right brain and do it well that... I'm special in my own way and these people that can't do business as well that are creative or dope as hell in their own way too. For
0: sure. 100% agree. I get the sense that like a lot of the themes that we talk about also are based on trial and error and maybe self-discovery, healing and stress. Like I feel like you maybe operate well from a place like a stressful place. Is that true or am I making assumptions?
1: I want to ask you why you think the stressful thing. That's interesting. Because
0: I feel like when it's like, it kind of takes you a moment of stress before something tremendous happens, right? And it's, again, like everything in life is duality, right? Like everything is a gift and a curse. Everything happens for a reason. Like there's so many ways to put it. But for me i don't operate well under stress, like mm. the minute i'm stressed, I shut down. Mm-hmm. like I do not function, yeah, yeah. no function like I need yeah. like I even look at it in the way that I walk in the streets. I walk like I have no place to go, even though I have some place to go, yeah. but like if I have to walk like I'm going somewhere, I get stressed out and then I can't perform well and that's just something I've noticed about myself, but yeah. based on our conversation, like there are moments where it seems like your real like power mm-hmm. almost comes from stress. Like yeah. maybe it's like a fighting position, like all of a yeah. sudden, you know?
1: No, I I really appreciate that <laughs> clarification because it provided me the color that I needed. So thank you. So I think if I hadn't asked you that question, I would have interpreted stress differently.
0: Right. The other stress.
1: Yeah. So I think how I would encapsulate what you just said in my own words is that For me to show up in my power or to, with some sort of inertia, catalyze real profound transformation in my life, it requires some cataclysm or some major thing in my life to precipitate that. And I do think that that's true. But I think that the symptom of that is fear, like my relationship to fear and like self worth, self love stuff. If I believed in myself more and if I was a little bit more okay with carrying on despite fear with fear, I think that I would then find the inertia on my own. It's significant. I wanted to leave my job at Williams-Sonoma forever, but it wasn't until I was fucking fired. I told people, they're like all congratulating me and shit, but I'm like, the universe fucking pushed me out. So when people said blessing in disguise, I was like, not being facetious for real, for real blessing in plain sight. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't know if I would have did it otherwise, you know? And so I do think that your reflection is accurate. And so that has been what it's been, For me, kind of like, unfortunately, I don't think that I'm definitely not one of those people in the classic sense of people like, oh, I work great on tight deadlines and stress. Like, so when you said stress, I heard that, that not. But what you're saying about like circumstance pushing me towards transformation. Yes, that's been my whole life. And I want to try and transcend that to try and find more of a self-driven initiated inertia, which is a challenge for me.
0: (laughs) I have to say that you are about 1,075% more eloquently spoken than I am. And the way that you describe it makes much, much better sense. Thank you. Inertia. Beautiful word. I like words. Not used enough. I know you
1: like words too. I
0: like words, but I'm a very plain spoken character. I like ideas. I try to like words, but words are hard for me. So Mm -hmm. are numbers. Mm -hmm. Um, I just try to communicate at a very plain language level but communicate really complex thoughts in that way.
1: I am into that. I think that's <laughs> such a beautiful art. I, yeah, I
0: appreciate that. Yeah. Um, so I want to talk about the few interesting things that have happened to you uh, in your life. I know that one of them is swallowing a quarter when you were five. I'm less interested in that. <laughs> what I would like to talk to is that in 2012, yeah. um, you described something as you're, you're able to feel energy, which yeah. to me... Is like your Spider Woman. Like you have a sixth sense. Yeah. What is feeling energy? Like I, I have the same reaction. Like I, t- I say this to people is like, I can see emotions. It's like that's what I say is like Sweet. I can see emotions. Like in the same way that Kanye West can see music and has synesthesia. Like I can see emotion. Like I can just see it. I don't know how to describe it. But like, is that a similar thing or absolutely? Is, is your okay? I, cool.
1: I, I would, I would say similar thing in terms of like the all of these things being the family of different ways of perception and perceiving and sensing, right? And so I guess I want to start off and maybe I'll like weave it into my story behind it is that you said that feeling energy makes, you know, might seem like it makes me superwoman, but the really profound thing about it for me is that anyone can experience what I'm about to explain that I experienced granted in, in all our own different ways. But so... I first learned about energy work in in 2012. I basically, a friend of mine was like, oh, there's this teacher that I really want to go on a retreat with in Jamaica. I did a weekend workshop with him in San Francisco. He's really great. And maybe she said like yoga meditation. I can't remember the word she used. And I hadn't been on a vacation in a long time and I thought it was just going to be like a chill retreat with a little bit of yoga and meditation. And she sent me the, his like PDF handout. He's like an old dude from Cleveland, doesn't know marketing. It's very esoteric language. And I'm just like, what the fuck does this shit say? And I'm the person with 1000 windows open. So it stayed open in my Acrobat reader for months. Like I was just like, I can't read this. Fuck it. I'm just going to go. So I went. It was a week long thing. We're going around the circle introducing ourselves and saying, you know, what our intentions for the weekend are. And there are people like being like, I want to align my chakras and I want to deepen my practice and like all this stuff. And I'd heard the words before, but they meant nothing to me. I didn't know, wasn't judgmental about it, but I was just like, wow, I'm really out of my like wheelhouse comfort zone right now. And so like, I think then people were using the word Qigong and I didn't know what Qigong was. I was like, I guess I'm at a fucking Qigong retreat. What the hell is that? But I'm here, so I'm going to do it. And so we got around to me. I was one of the last people to go. And I really said something to the effect of like, I don't know what Qigong is, but I'm here. So I'm down. <laughs> people just looked Which at me like, that's your baller intention. That. Why are you here?
0: <laughs> that's a great intention.
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think so too. But yeah, a couple of people were like, wait, why are you here? And so um, one of the opening exercises was to like, you know, kind of in a pantomime fashion, um, place our hands, say at a foot's distance from a person we're partnered with and feel their aura. And so I did it. I was like, everything I'm going to do, I'm going to do, I'm going to be a good sport, even though I don't believe I can do it. Didn't feel anything. And it turned out it was an intensive, uh, the retreat. So we were doing, um, with some breaks, but not many, 14-hour days of Qigong for, I think it was like six, seven days. Wow. And it wasn't physically demanding, but I'll explain in a bit. It was it was uh, energetically tiring which ended up in physical tiredness at the end of the day. So on day two or three of going through and doing all these different practices, I actually started feeling energy in my body to the point that my body was actually kind of like shaking on its own a little bit. From what I've learned over the years now, people can perceive energy in different ways. It can feel like a hot, a cold, a buzzing, a tingling, a pressure, a magnet, like all of these different kinds of things. And so I was feeling some of those sensations. And I was like, oh, shit, I'm feeling energy. And to the point that I was like, involuntarily, as I was doing the practices, it's like my my hands or my arms were bobbing or shaking a little bit. And I knew what it was. It didn't freak me out. But I was like, oh, my God. It was literally a life, universe, paradigm, existential, spiritual, like altering transformative moment. I was raised Muslim. And my God concept up until that point was something that I remembered as a verse of the Quran that now that I've like narrated to people, they're like, that's not actually the verse. But Oh, well, that's how I remembered it. It was, it was like some verse about like God is everywhere and in everything and as close to you as your jugular vein. There's some jugular vein verse. And I was like, okay, God's omnipresent. So being from the Bay Area, having a lot of hippie, new-agey, progressive, liberal friends, you start hearing about words like the universe and all these things and energy colloquially. And I was like, oh, energy, universe, oh, that's God. Same thing to me. And so when I felt energy, I was like, oh, shit. I just felt energy, which means I felt the universe. Which I always just felt God. Oh, my God. You know, <laughs> it was amazing. And I thought you had to be a monk to feel that shit. Right. And so I was like, wait, who is this like regular ass me on day three feeling energy? Anybody can feel this. And as being a person who's always just in how I move about the world, even though it hasn't been my formal work has been very organized around social justice. I was like why don't people know about this? This has been kept from people. People need to know it is their birthright to be able to feel their energy in this way. We're just, It's just a lack of awareness and lack of self-empowerment to know that any of us can tap into this in any time. And granted, it's going to look different for different people. For Pharrell and Kanye, it's synesthesia. For you, it's seeing emotions. Other people see auras. And what seeing or feeling or whatever, hearing, it means so many different things, right? Feeling energy. So feeling energy is just like, the, and one way that science can measure it right now, but there's a lot of energy frequency, it can't measure electromagnetic fields. So people, there have been studies done of like two people placed in separate rooms and one person is emitting a certain emotion and they're measuring the electromagnetic fields of the relative individual's heart's electromagnetic fields and seeing the differences in that aligned with emotional shifts, right? And so literally energy of emotion, actual energy, measurable energy. And again, it can only be measured with modern science to a point. That's a continued area of study or like energy showing up in other ways where I can't remember his name, but he's like a Japanese, maybe scientist or something. And there's a book about it. And he basically did this study where he took like, let's say I'm butchering it, but let's say bottles of water you know, like mason jars of water or whatever. And on certain ones, like he said, I hate you to one of them every day. And to another one, he said, I love you. And on another one, he put like a, a positive affirmation label, just words. And on another one, he put negative words, et cetera, et cetera. So the one that he said, hey, I hate you to every day, the mason jar with water, it turned into like a sludge and like black and grimy and gross. What he did, sorry, is he then looked at the water molecules of each of these bottles of water. And the one that was, I hate you, looked like this like grimy sludge. And then the one that was given, I love you every day, looked all crystalline and like snowflakes and shit. And so when you think about that, and like humans are primarily composed of water, like how our energy, our thoughts affect our physiology and our biology and mental and physical illness and how this is all interrelated. So I really... I mean, I'm going in all these different tangents and one can talk about this forever. But yes, I believe I don't have a superpower. We all have superpowers. And to even call it a superpower is perhaps the issue. This is just who we are. We can all feel this. And there's not one right or wrong way to do it. And I am really passionate about access to information around wellness and self-empowered healing.
0: Thank you so much. I think that that's the dopest thing I've heard today for sure. Maybe this week. And I would love to join you in learning more about it. How do you feel about wrapping this bad boy up?
1: Let's do it.
0: All right. So keep up with Sahar and follow her on Instagram at Sahar and check out her website to see what she's up to at sahar.co. S-E-H-E-R.co. If you like this show, the one you're listening to right now, please follow us on Instagram at youpeople.podcast. And subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or YouTube. If you like me, your host, follow at Kareem on Instagram. And if you're interested in hearing more colorful stories, follow us at hyphen media. This episode of You People is presented in partnership with Listening Party. Follow the crew on Instagram at Listening Party Presents and at Canal Street Market. See you all next time. Bye. (laughs) Are you listening to this episode on Himalaya? If you are, congratulations, because you're already using the best new podcast app out there. If you're not, you're missing out. Whether you're a podcaster or a fan, Himalaya is designed with you in mind and has a ton of cool features like curated, shareable playlists, dark mode, and personalized recommendations to help you discover your next favorite show. And the best part is, it's super easy to use. So do yourself a favor. Go to the App Store, download Himalaya, and be sure to follow you people once you're there.